How did the United States get involved in Vietnam? What role did the Army have after the French defeat at Dien Bien Phu? Why were Green Berets created, and what was their role in Vietnam? For answers to these questions and more Vietnam War insights, stay tuned. Welcome to the U.S. Army History and Heritage Podcast, the official podcast of the United States Army Center of Military History. The Center of Military History writes and publishes the Army's official history, manages the U.S. Army Museum Enterprise, and provides historical support throughout the U.S. Army. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. I'm Lee Reynolds, the Strategic Communications Officer for the Center of Military History. In this episode, part one of a five-part series on the Vietnam War, we are discussing how and why the United States got involved in Vietnam with a focus on the Army role, especially with the support of advisors and the creation of the Green Berets. Joining me to lead us through this discussion is Vietnam War historian Dr. Eric B. Villard. Welcome, Eric, and thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. So a little background on Dr. Villard. He is the digital military historian for the U.S. Army Center of Military History and one of the Army's leading Vietnam War historians. He wrote a volume in one of the U.S. Army Center of Military's History Army Combat Operations in Vietnam War series titled Staying the Course, October 1967 to September 1968, which was published in December of 2017. He's currently writing a volume on the U.S. Army combat operations in Vietnam, October 1968 to December 1969. Outside of CMH, Dr. Villard is also the founder of the Vietnam War History Foundation, a nonprofit organization that has over 44,000 members on its Facebook group. He appeared as an on-air historian for the TV documentary Raw War, the lost film of Doc To, which premiered on the American Heroes channel in March of 2014. He's also appeared on the Heroes of Hamburger Hill documentary, which aired on Fox Nation. And he is a historical consultant to the New York Historical Society, Vietnam Magazine, and to Ken Burns and Lynn Novak, for their Vietnam War documentary series. Wow, that's a mouthful. That's a lot on uh, a lot of history, a lot of Vietnam. Uh, um, but what am I missing about your background? Well, that covers most of the bases, I think. Uh, I again have always been a Vietnam War historian by by interest, by training, and uh, it will always be the focus of my professional career. But um, as my role as a digital historian for the center. Uh, which is something uh, I started doing about seven years ago. Some of the other things that I do for the center and that help inform me with the Vietnam War research are doing things like doing uh, photo restoration, doing uh, digital mapping, doing website design, basically some of these software techniques that, for me as a historian, help me understand things like the Vietnam War um, in... much better detail than I feel like I could accomplish any other way because, you know, having a map on Google Earth, for example, that shows what everything looked like back then, 
allows me a deeper understanding. And so hopefully that's helped inform the research I've done for the books and for the center. Yeah, and having these maps uh, in the books, but also uh, you developed the Vietnam War uh, website for the Center of Military History as well. And so people can access what you're talking about and, and see them there as well. So great work. Well, let's get this discussion started. Vietnam, hot topics, always been a, a, a hot topic. Um, so let's talk about, uh, in this episode, we want to cover really the, the beginnings. What got us into the war? Um, so let's start our discussion with what I know President Johnson uh, called in his famous speech, Why Vietnam? So how and why did the United States, and particularly the United States Army, get involved in Vietnam War? I guess at the time it wasn't called Vietnam, it was French Indochina. Well, again, this it's always a, a sort of a, a topic of debate. It's like, where do you start? Like, what is, what is the point, what is the date that you choose to say, this is when we're going to start thinking of it as the Vietnam War? Uh, there's a lot of different... Uh, you know, possibilities. But for our purposes, I think we should start in 1945. Uh, this is the moment where Southeast Asia, which includes Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, um, become something of a strategic interest for the United States. Again, 1945, we're, we're nearing the end of World War II uh, in this place that was a French colony for about a century, includes Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, collectively known as Indochina mm-hmm. by the French. Uh, the Japanese control this, this, this part of the world and, and have, have done so since really the start of the war. So in 1945, there is this sort of ragtag bunch of Vietnamese who are fighting the Japanese, uh, their name is Viet Minh, or the shortened name. It basically means sort of a Vietnamese National Front, led by this person named Ho Chi Minh. Mm-hmm. Now, Ho Chi Minh was not his real name. Um, he had many aliases during his life, but this is a person who had been fighting to achieve Vietnamese independence for decades. He was a communist, but he was a nationalist. So you could be both at the same time. And the United States took an interest in Ho Chi Minh and his Vietnam fighters because as the American forces and the Allied forces began advancing steadily towards Japan, again, the idea is that we're going to have to probably invade Japan to finish the war. Um, You have a lot of uh, Allied aircraft flying over places like Vietnam. And so we began working with Ho Chi Minh and his followers to help, for example, find and locate some of those allied pilots who had to crash land. Mm. And so we uh, parachuted in a team of experts from the OSS. And that's the... uh, Forerunner to the CIA, effectively, the Office of Strategic Services. These are covert agents. And they parachuted in to work with Ho Chi Minh and his followers. In fact, Ho Chi Minh, um, at the time this team um, parachuted in, was, was, was quite ill. Um, and this is a person been living in the jungle for years, and so he was possibly on death's door, and it was American doctors that helped kind of bring him back to life. So this is why the Americans first get involved, is to help this person. But when the war ends, Ho Chi Minh uh, and his followers decide, okay, this is what we've been fighting for. We now get our own country. They go into Hanoi and say, 
uh, make a big speech saying, you know, basically, thank you, America, for helping us. We believe in your ideals. And now, you know, we expect you to help us have our own country. And in that speech, I, I believe yeah. he, he really was targeting the United States yeah. for support. And he even uses the Declaration of Independence he, he, to He uses to passages from it. Um, it. Ho Chi Minh is a shrewd guy. He understands his audience. He understands that he needs American support if he's going to get his country back and not the French. Right, because he thought, because President Roosevelt um, had said that yeah. Vietnam would would be allowed to be an independent nation because uh, we weren't going, going to support the French right. going back Throughout in. Throughout the war, uh, FDR had supported the rights of indigenous populations, and he was very much an anti-colonialist. Mm-hmm. But as we know, uh, he dies late in the war and is replaced by President Truman. And Truman is sort of cut from a different cloth, and Truman does not have the same kind of commitment mm-hmm. To this anti-colonialism. So what actually happens is when the war ends, President Truman decides that, in fact, it makes more sense for the United States to support France, not Ho Chi Minh. So instead of France uh, being kicked out or you know being removed and Ho Chi Minh taking over, the United States says, look, we really need French help resisting the communists in Europe. The French are very upset that they – lost their entire colonial empire, okay, we'll let them return. So this sort of moment of cooperation with Ho Chi Minh passes very quickly. So about what time did the French really come back in and then Ho Chi Minh starts kind of rebelling? The speech in, you know, Japan surrenders September 1945. Ho Chi Minh gives the speech, and within a matter of months, it's clear that the United States is not going to support him. So the French return to power and, and, and insult to injury. In fact, the French actually rearmed some of the Japanese who they just defeated to help put down Ho Chi Minh and his followers. Oh, wow. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of an ugly situation. The British come back, you know, basically all the colonial occupiers say, okay, now France is back in control. So, so within a year, by November 46, Ho Chi Minh and his followers start an open war against the French occupiers. So that's the start of the first Indochina War. How did that progress? Because then we've got um, China starting to come under Mao Zedong. And so what was the relationship then? Because now Ho Chi Minh is leaning more to the communists. Well, and this is a person who is a lifelong communist anyway, so it's not surprising. But for the first couple of years, Ho Chi Minh and followers are basically a guerrilla force, not well-armed you know, living in the jungles and, and the mountains. But already combat-hardened. But combat-hardened and incredibly dedicated, very disciplined. And their numbers begin to grow because they have popular support. There's so many people, you know, in, in Vietnamese who said, yeah, we don't want the French here. So his support grows in the countryside. The main uh, turning point happens in 1950. Okay, that's the year when, for example, the Korean War begins, mm-hmm. right? So the United States is now fighting in Asia. It's also the year that Mao Zedong's communist forces take over in China. So now China is a massive communist superpower. And that's the moment where China begins giving substantial military aid to Ho Chi Minh, and it changes the entire game because they they share a common border. Mm -hmm. And now the Viet Minh are getting 
modern equipment, artillery, small arms, all the logistical support to fight. And so by 50, the war goes from a bunch of ragtag guerrillas to now the French are, are in, in real trouble. And this is, the, this is the year the United States creates an advisory group, the first one. For Vietnam. For Vietnam. Well, it's, it's actually called the Military Assistance Advisory Group Indochina because there is no Vietnam yet. But who are we advising at the time? We are advising the French National Forces. So that would be the French troops plus the Vietnamese troops fighting on behalf of the French and the, and the Vietnamese emperor, Bao Dai. He's supposed to be the leader, but it's really the French calling the shots. But we are supporting and advising the French and their Vietnamese allies. Yeah, and, and, and again, I just want to point out, there is no North and South of Vietnam no, at this point. It's still in just, Indochina. Indochina, it's, yeah, one nation. Exactly. So then, um, how does all this progress? So again, with, with China's assistance, uh, the Viet Minh gather more and more territory and strength. They begin building up the force to begin operating as battalions and the regiments and divisions. And by 19, the end of 1953, the French are really on the back foot. And so what, what happens is you have a showdown in this remote mountain valley called Dien Bien Phu. It's in the northern part of Vietnam, what is now Vietnam. And it is, uh, again, basically a showdown between some of the best French forces and some of the best Viet Minh forces. And the reason this is important is both sides have agreed to have peace talks in Geneva. And so and essentially, whoever wins this battle is going to have the upper hand in negotiations. The problem is, French kind of chose a, a bad place to have this showdown. It's this remote valley where the Viet Minh basically took the high ground, dragged artillery over mountains, and now began you know, bombarding the French into submission. The United States actually thinks about employing nuclear weapons at one point. To help the the French, um, and and well, well and other than that, you mentioned that we we had an advisory group. So right. did we actually have American service members? No, or no, CIA these, on the ground. This was, I mean, we had at this point we're talking just maybe a couple hundred advisors, and these advisors are essentially technical um, personnel who are helping um, transfer surplus World War II American equipment. To the French. So by 1954, 80% of all France's war effort in Indochina is American aid. Money, equipment, like you look at all the vehicles, they're using the stuff we use to defeat Nazi Germany and we turn it back and give it to them. So our MAG Indochina team, that's essentially what they're doing is they're providing the stuff. They're not doing much in the way of training and they're not in DNB and Fu. They're not in the line of fire. Ultimately, uh, the Viet Minh, with Chinese assistance, uh, close in and overrun the garrison at Dien Bien Phu. And so in May 45, the garrison falls, and this essentially um, you know, sort of seals the deal with the peace talks. So when the Geneva Accords are signed in July of 1954, uh, it's clear that France has got to go. I mean, they, they accept that. There's, there's no way they can stay. However, uh, the... Uh, the French don't give up everything in the sense that with the Soviet Union um, actually helping out, Ho Chi Minh 
only gets to control half the country. So the deal in Geneva is let's divide what is Vietnam into two parts along the 17th parallel because Ho Chi Minh and his followers are quite strong in the north. France agrees. But in the south, they're much less strong than they are in the north. So let's divide the country into two parts for two years, and then let's hold a national referendum. And that will decide ultimately who controls a reunified Vietnam. So that's the outcome of the Geneva Accords is— And that was in 54? 54. But now in the United States, we have a different president. We've got Eisenhower, who right. um, um, took over in 53. Right. And so how is he handling the situation? Well, again, uh, other than, you know, briefly considering using tactical nuclear weapons— to Was help, that the Eisenhower and administration? That was, uh, that, yeah, it was the Eisenhower administration. Again, that, they, they, they quashed that idea pretty quickly. Probably wouldn't have worked anyways— uh, but Eisenhower's feeling is, okay, and again, keep in mind, this is the Korean War has also come to an end in 1953. So Eisenhower's feeling is, now that you have these two Vietnams, let's support the southern half. Let's help build them into an anti-communist nation. Right. So is this the beginning of what we, we've come to know as the domino theory? It was a genesis, effectively, because the, the, the fear was now that you had this massive communist China and, of course, the Soviets who were happy to support wars of national liberation, if you didn't hold the line, you would have this, what they call domino effect, a tumbling of nations that would go communist. And if you didn't hold the line in Vietnam, if you didn't support this new South Vietnam, then who's next? Yeah, because this this is you know in the heart. This is the the early phases of the Cold War. Right. So this was fought in Korea. We right. held the line against the communists right. there. Domino theory. Now in Vietnam, yeah. and so Eisenhower sees that yeah. as a need to prevent the communists from taking over. And Korea is very much a model, and we should never yeah. forget this. The, even though you might say we we fought the war to a draw. Um, you didn't reunify Korea under a non-communist government. The fact is you, you held the line and prevented the communists from taking over. So the, this is very much the same thing. Let's do the same thing in Vietnam. Let's build a South Vietnam that can resist, that can be like the, the finger on the dike. Right. So, so then from 54, 55, uh, through the rest of the Eisenhower administration, what was America's involvement in Vietnam? So during this period, you know, 55 to 1960, uh, the American advisory uh, group, which is now MAG Vietnam, because there is now a Republic of South Vietnam. There is a South Vietnamese nation um, under this uh, president named No Dinh Diem, a Catholic. The role of the American advisory program um, begins to expand as do its numbers. So by the end of like 1960, you have about 685 U.S. advisors. And you had mentioned before it was mainly technical. Is right. it still technical? Now it's expanding to uh, doing direct advising and training. So it's technical, but it's also actually going out there on the training courses and helping. So we've, we've got Army personnel on the ground. Absolutely. We have Army personnel on the ground. Again, it's relatively small number, so they're not everywhere, right. but they're in the important places. I mean, they're advising you know, the division commands and the, and, the, and the core commands. So now you actually have American advisors by the end of 1960 working with the South Vietnamese. But then early 61, we have a new president again, yeah. President John Kennedy. And so we're expanding. 
President Kennedy is coming in. Um, he too wants to appear uh, hard on the communists. Right. You know, stop stop the domino theory, the expansion of communism, and so he wanted to expand the commitment. Can you explain how that? Yeah, and and happened? the reason this kind of came about is is through the you know the final years of the 1950s, these communists who stayed behind in South Vietnam, a lot of them went north, but some stayed behind. President Diem tried to eradicate them and got a lot of them, but not everyone. But by the end of the 1950s, these communists in South Vietnam start an armed insurgency. They decide, okay, well, obviously there's not going to be a popular referendum. Like that ship is Yeah, sailed. so that never happened. That never happened, <laughs> right. So now we are going to sort of restart the guerrilla war. So when Kennedy becomes president in 1961, these communist guerrillas who are known now by the pejorative term Viet Cong, not Viet Minh, but same people. So it's the same, okay. Essentially the same people still, you know, taking directions from Ho Chi Minh and his people in the north. Um, this insurgency begins to become pretty serious. So by 61, Kennedy realizes we have to do more. We can't just have the same 685 people. We have to start pumping in more advisors. And so one of the things he does is he turns to special forces. Um, you know, we know them as the Green Berets. Now, did they exist prior they to the Kennedy administration? They existed prior to this. And in fact, their original purpose, um, really their original purpose, uh, was to operate in Europe to go behind Soviet lines and to create guerrilla movements to fight the Soviets. Oh. I mean, that so that was... That was their original because oftentimes you hear and you read that you know, Kennedy is considered the person that started the the Green or at least authorized right, it. Right. Well, he he's uh, he certainly was enamored by by the, the cut of their jib, so to speak. Um, and 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 he was a, he was attracted with the idea of using these high small highly elitely trained forces to fight against a people's war. So he was the one who authorized them to wear the faint, now famous green oh, so berets. That's, that's the genesis right. of this. Because okay. their official title is U.S. Special Forces, not the the green berets is the thing that we have it's to the come nickname to know that we exactly. know them by. But he said, yes, I authorize them to wear that special symbol. Okay. But that's, the, so he's- And then their mission. So the Green Berets, right. small units, and small units. they're employed to and, and they, train. And, and, they, and they, their mission kind of begins to evolve in this period. Because, again, going from you know parachuting behind Soviet lines to build resistance movements in Vietnam, principally what they do is they go up into the mountains. Because if you look at South Vietnam, the coastline tends to be um, flat where they, grow, where they grow most of the rice. But the interior of these forest carp covered mountains, and there's peoples who live up there who are not ethnically Vietnamese. The, the overall term for them is Montagnards. It's simply a French term for mountaineer. Oh, okay. But they are ethnically distinct from Vietnamese, and there are dozens of different tribes, different languages, but these Montagnards are the people that's, that the Green Berets work with. So they go up into the mountains in small teams, A teams. Okay, so we all know Mr. T., Mm -hmm. we, they were made, right, sure. The A team. Well, the A team that that's the designator for basically a dozen special right. forces guys. So they go out and work with these tribesmen in these different villages and begin organizing them uh, to resist the Viet Cong. Because by sixty one sixty two, you now have this thing called the Ho Chi Minh Trail, right? Mm -hmm. North Vietnam is now sending 
men and supplies down through Laos and Cambodia and then into South Vietnam. And why were they sending them there? Well, this was a way for them to infiltrate South Vietnam all along its interior border because the two nations along the 17th parallel, that's a pretty narrow space. Mm-hmm. So it's called the demilitarized zone. It was never right. demilitarized, yeah. but it's a hard place to get across. But if you do an end run, then you can create supply depots all along. And they felt safe there because Cambodia and Laos are supposed to be neutral like, and, and the South Vietnamese and the Americans can't go get them. So this is why the Montagnards and the, and the Green Braves are so important because they live in the mountains. They can keep track of these infiltration routes coming into South Vietnam. So that's, that's where this special force is be, assume a large role. And then what about training the South Vietnamese army as well? That is a job for the regular army advisors. So their numbers begin to grow in 61, 62, 63. So, you know, by 63, we're talking it's at least 16,000 American army advisors. Oh, wow. And and these advisors are doing everything from training South Vietnamese soldiers um, – down to the battalion level. I mean, so they are all over the country now. And what is the focus of their training? So um, it's we're mainly facing an insurgency. So this would be counterinsurgency training, or is it to some extent? To some extent, um, because the the threat is evolving. Um, the Viet Cong have um, have become a much more sophisticated force over the last three or four years. There are still guerrillas running around. And, and part of the training is that literally the black pajama, farmer by day, sniper by night. Mm-hmm. And so, you you know, training the South Vietnamese forces to to deal with that kind of threat. But now the Viet Cong by 63 are operating as regiments. So you're also having to train them to fight a conventional force. So the the things that they're required to train them for become more and more complex. And it's not just the infantry, but they're training them in communications, uh, engineering, logistics, all the things you can think of, the Army by 63 is totally embedded in the South Vietnamese Army. And so let's talk about the weapons then. We're training them. You had mentioned earlier that uh, the French were using a lot of old American equipment. Right. You know, it's now a decade later. What weapons are we training them on? The South Vietnamese forces still, by and large, are using surplus American equipment. From World War II? From World War II. Oh, wow. Right, from World War II. So they are, they are, for example, the standard um, rifle they used is an M1 or M2 carbine. So if you know the M1 Garand of World War II fame, the M1 Garand is it's just too big and heavy for the average South Vietnamese soldier. So they use the carbine, the shortened, lightened version. Um, so that's their standard. They're using 30 caliber machine guns. All the, if you've seen Saving Private Ryan, it's all that kind of weapons, okay. right? The newer stuff is going to the Americans. Um, but right now we're, we're – Do we have the M16s yet? Not yet. I mean the special forces begin experimenting with early versions in 62, 63. But the average uh, American advisor is using an M14, which is basically a semiotic version of a Garand. Um, the 16 doesn't really come in until 1965. But what the Americans are providing, this this – this is significant. By 62, 63, um, the American advisors are flying helicopters. 
So they're bringing in several types of helicopters, including the famous Huey. That if you've seen any Vietnam War movie, you know it. You know it. I mean, that's almost the symbol of, of the symbol Vietnam of War. War is, is right. the Huey. And I know in our next podcast, we're going to talk yeah. a little bit more about that yeah. and the transformation of of tactics using right. uh, using those. But what other type of helicopters were? Well, there's used? there's there was uh, several again on the Army side. Um, there's this odd thing called a, a, a Shawnee in H twenty one. It's nicknamed the Flying Banana. It has two rotors. It's this odd looking aircraft, but it, not not particularly powerful. But the point here is that by 62, 63, American pilots are now flying South Vietnamese troops into battle. Oh. So there's a slippery slope, right? Mm-hmm. American advisors are still not direct combatants. They're not supposed to be, quote, unquote, fighting. Right. But now that they're flying them into danger zones, mm-hmm. they're getting shot at. Right. And so, so again, sort of the, the more deeply involved you get with the training or, say, uh, armor advisors. You know, we're giving them old M24 tanks from World War II. Well, it helps to kind of go out in the field and make sure they're doing it right, and that means you get shot so at. So you have to be there. So, you'd be, so, so the danger levels are growing for the American advisors as their numbers rise mm-hmm. and as their missions proliferate. Just kind of wondering why we're not getting more involved, but we— we soon will, right? But 1964, American 64 is, troops is, is, get attacked. Yeah. 64, 64 is a, a really fateful year in a lot of ways because um, you have at, at 63 some important things happen, right? You, the president of, of South Vietnam, No Dinh Diem, the Catholic I mentioned before, um, is assassinated in a military coup by his own people. Um, so there's political instability. And that happens just soon, uh, just about a month or two before Kennedy. Right. Uh, just a little less than three weeks. So three, oh. a little less than three weeks later, President Kennedy is assassinated in November in, in here in, in Dallas. And so suddenly the political situation in both countries is kind of thrown into turmoil. Um, the Viet Cong insurgency continues to grow. Its control of the countryside is expanding. The, the South Vietnamese Army, for all the su- support we're giving it, is doing worse. So in 64, when, when um, Lyndon B. Johnson you know, b- becomes president, he was a vice president, now he's the president, um, he has a real dilemma. On one hand, his passion is what he calls the Great Society. He has this vision for creating... Um, economic development and, and, and social justice in the United States. And that's going to cost a lot of money. And it's also going to require a lot of political support because things like civil rights, those are all things that he wants. But on the other hand, he inherited this mess in Vietnam. And he's not about to back away from that because he knows as a Democrat uh, what happened to Truman uh, when Back in the Korean War, when Mao Zedong took over communist China, the Republicans excoriated the Democrats somehow as, as if it were their fault yeah. and hit, hurt them politically. So Johnson basically is caught between rock and Yeah, he couldn't place. be seen as being soft on communism. He can't be communism. soft and caught. He can't just simply Here's wash his hands domino theory comes into play again. Exactly. All those factors are still in effect. We have, again, approaching 20,000 advisors now. He can't just simply cut and run. Um, and so what does he do? Well— for a while, he simply does more of the same, hoping for the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this, this, this finally 
becomes a crisis in August of 1964. Uh, probably a lot of you have heard, at least heard of the Gulf of Tonkin incident. So in short, this is what this is. This is the backstory. Um, the United States are again still not fighting directly against the communists, but they want to do more. So they authorize the South Vietnamese to do this whole range of covert operations against the North. So one of the things th that the South Vietnamese do is they they take these uh, speedboats and and race up the coast of North Vietnam and attack North Vietnamese targets. And when that happens, American destroyers cruising off the Gulf of Tonkin, mm -hmm. off the coast, have their little electronic ears perked up. Because when the South Vietnamese hit those targets, the North Vietnamese radar system goes nuts. And so these destroyers, these called DeSoto patrols, are mapping the North Vietnamese air defense system yeah. with the ideas maybe if we're going to have to bomb North Vietnam, we, we, we want to know. This is what happens. 2 August 1964, one of these destroyers, the USS Maddox, is cruising off you know, in the Gulf. One of these South Vietnamese raids happens. And this time, uh, three North Vietnamese patrol boats come out and actually attack the Maddox. Now, they don't do any damage to it, but they're, but they're exchanging gunfire for a while. And so, of course, alarm bells go off in, you know, in Washington. Um, the question is, what do we do? You know, what do we do? And Johnson basically says, go back in there. Just keep doing the mission. Mm -hmm. So two nights later, the Turner Joy and the Maddox go back and continue the mission. And the reports come in, oh, they've been attacked again. They've been attacked again. Now, this second time, immediately there's suspicion of, well, were they actually attacked? Because, like, the American planes that went out to look for the patrol boats didn't see anything. Hmm. And what it turns out is probably um, the the novice sonar operator, born the Turner Joy, mm -hmm. was mistaking the sounds of the knuckles in the water of his ship turning fast for enemy oh. torpedoes in the water. Okay, so, but the point is, even though Johnson thought, yeah, maybe this didn't happen, here he had, I mean, he, he had sort of the, the pretext to take that extra step, to, to, to bring more pressure. So 7 August 1964, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution passes in Congress, and this basically gives a blank check. His administration to use force against so what does it Vietnam. say? What is it? I mean, essentially, and again, it's a resolution, yeah, so it's it, not a declaration of war, right? It's not a declaration of war, it authorizes the president to use all necessary measures to um, force North Vietnam. I mean, the sort of the, 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 the narrow interpretation was they had attacked our ships in international waters, right? So it was a violation of that. So, the president now has authority to use all necessary measures to uphold our rights mm -hmm. to be in international waters. Okay. But really the subtext is right. use what force you need mm -hmm. to get the North Vietnamese to come to heel. And this has a lot of historical impact because even years later, you know, we keep hearing, oh, yeah. it, you know, we, we don't want another Gulf of Tonkin right. resolution, another right. blank check. Yeah. Uh, so Congress is really careful about doing those things. Um, and I guess you can debate whether or not that's, they've well, done it or right not. Enough, but at the time. But getting back here, this yeah. was yeah. this was the blank check. So, yeah. um, I mean, we're getting towards the end of, of, of 64. So mm -hmm. 
um, from there until I, I would say early 65, what was the impact of that resolution? So, so the immediate impact, again, and let's keep in mind that most of the people in Congress also did not have access all this intel, like like mm-hmm. a lot of them didn't understand the different photos. Yeah, right, they didn't understand, you know, and also that this the second incident may not have happened. Mm-hmm. Okay, but that aside, it was a different era. Um, again, this was not a declaration of war, and and I don't think very few people at the time thought it would sort of lead that far. They simply saw it as giving the president the authority he needed to, you know, get North Vietnam to to you know come to heel. And so the immediate effect was we launched the first airstrikes. Now it's just a uh, retaliation and then they're over. Mm-hmm. But the fact is we have now crossed a threshold. We have now engaged in direct war attacks against North Vietnam. And that sets the stage for what comes in 65. All right. And, and uh, we will uh, attack 1965 <laughs> in our next uh, podcast. As I close out each episode, I ask for a bit of hua trivia. Yeah. Something about that time frame that's going to kind of a little bit of trivia that's going to wow the audience. Oh, wow the of, audience. Do you have a bit of hua trivia for this time frame? Uh, there's, oh, I don't know, there's there's a lot of things I think are, are, are you know, cool and, and interesting about this period. Um, let me just offer this, um, and it may not seem hua at the time, but you'll, you'll see where I'm going with this. In 1962... We create the Military Assistance Command Vietnam, MACV. That becomes our guiding headquarters during the war. And two years later, General William C. Westmoreland becomes its second commander. So 64, you now have General Westmoreland in charge of MACV, and he's going to be essentially you know, running the war for the next four years. So I, you know, Westmoreland is a controversial figure in his mm-hmm. own right. We'll be saying more about him. Talk more about that. More yes. about him, but 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 just yeah, keep in mind that you know it, early in the war of '64, you kind of have all the, all the principal figures in place, right. uh, Johnson and all his advisors. They're going to be running the war for the next four years. Well, good. Well, great. Thank you so much, Eric, for your discussions and insights today about the early stages of the Vietnam War. And if anyone wants to learn more about the Vietnam War or Army history in general, I encourage you to explore our website at history.army.mil, and you can access all our publications about Vietnam from our website. They are available as free PDF downloads, or you can purchase them from the government publishing office. And if you want to experience Army history every day, then visit our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please join us every week on this podcast for more in-depth discussions about Army history. We launch a new episode every Monday. So thanks for joining us today on the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. For the Center of Military History, I'm Lee Reynolds. And until next time, we're history. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or opinions of the U.S. Army or Department of Defense. For more information about the Army's proud history and heritage, go to history dot army dot mill.